This is Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. And Michael Fragan here talking politics with Jacob Cornblue of The Forward, senior political reporter, analyst throughout the country covering what is important to the Jewish community and what is going on with Jews and Jewish politics. Jacob, welcome back to Spin Class. Glad to have you Always here. Always a pleasure to be in Spin Class. Okay, so we are wrapping up the 2021 year. Obviously, politics never stops. We go from one to the other. It's an off year, uh, as, as you well know, but there are some big political stories. New Jersey, Virginia, the New York City mayoral race, although it seems that that would happen so long ago. Uh, but so much to talk about. What, from your perspective, and as you cover the intersection of Jews and politics, are the most are the top political stories of 2021. What should we be taking so away? So since I cover national, local, and Israel, I would say there are three categories, which means um, first in Israel, there was finally a result after four consecutive elections, a new coalition government made up of diverse parties, a new approach to things, some new policy. Uh, so that's a big change. Um, they just passed the budget after three years and there is sort of the expectation that something different will be coming out of israel either vis-a-vis -vis the um, palestinians or in hoping to finally uh, sort of sort out uh, the iranian um, uh, nuclear threat um, and that brings me to the second part which is national and there's sort of this transformation from the beginning of the year when we saw uh, President Biden take office, we finally sort of relaxed a little, you know, journalists and political junkies and, and especially those people who are interested in politics never rest. And for us, relaxation is not a solution. But we sort of had that um, anticipation that something different would be coming out uh, of Washington. Now, uh, you mentioned the Virginia results. Uh, there's also public opinion polls that show that President Biden is very unpopular. And he doesn't have that face that President Trump had sort of to stick with him no matter what. And so, yes, there's no comparison between uh, President Biden's either personal behavior or the way he communicates with the public with that of former President Donald Trump, but they are sort of very, uh, uh, there's a thin line uh, in terms of their inability to sort of cross over for a moment across the aisle, trying to sort of work out a deal with a, um, um, opposition to get things done. And what we've seen in Washington, what we've seen from the Biden administration is stick very hard to their principles. Yes, obviously, everybody wants to follow through with their campaign promises, but for the benefit of the country, that doesn't mean you go ahead in the wall. And so that is sort of a reflection of what we see in public opinion polls, where it also projects to the outside. Israel feels a little more comfortable right now to sort of uh, pick a fight with the Biden administration because they know the Biden administration is very vulnerable and there's a big chance that the House um, and even 
the Senate would flip to Republican control next year, and that would make easier for um, Israeli policymakers to sort of navigate through um, their uh, differences with, you know, long-standing U.S. policy. It's not uh, something that Biden uh, did. And then we shift to New York City and New York State, I would say, because what we have seen is so much drama that you sort of can't put your head around it. From Governor Cuomo, who was this big star, this person who took down everybody, who was supposed to run for president, gave up on a post in the Biden administration to run for fourth term, and he did everything he could to sort of dominate the headlines and to show that he is this big uh, COVID um, uh, relief expert. And what comes to re revelation right now is the opposite. And so him, uh, 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 you know, resigning and, and, and New York politics sort of shifting in, in, in the opposite direction from his uh, government style is sort of a dramatic shift. Because for the first time, I think, and we, we, we talked to a Jewish audience, so it's important to note that this year, uh, the coming year's uh, Democratic primary for governor, uh, and also general election, by the way, um, is going to be very interesting. Because first, you have potentially three candidates who have strong relationships with the Jewish community, who are very pro-Israel, who would make... Uh, at least, um, a, a, you know, do a decent job in sort of uh, um, when, when it comes to policy, uh, um, either with the general Jewish community, but also with the, with the Orthodox community, as we've, we, we saw about these mandates and so on. And it's going to be very difficult for either donors and uh, political groups and, uh, uh, um, um, you know, voting blocks to actually decide whom... Uh, to back for governor, and I think in, if, for the first time, I think since 2010, uh, there's a decent chance that it might be even a competitive race in November. I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm referring to 2010 because before Paladino actually exploded on live TV, he actually uh, was tied with Governor Cuomo uh, I think 44 to 43% in public opinion polls. But, you know, for the f we have uh, Lee Zeldin, who is a respected congressman, uh, a Jewish Republican, uh, um, running for governor in a state that has, you know, the upstate uh, uh, suburban areas could vote for a Republican. Rob Estorino did well. Mark Marinero uh, did very well. And he's very well known in the Jewish community. But also Swazi. Swazi has very good relations with the uh, Long Island Jewish community has a very strong proposal record, and Governor Hochul is doing a very good job, not only in terms of, of, of doing outreach, but also in maintaining a long-standing relationship with the Jewish community. And uh, that, that's just on the state level, and we're not going into assembly on the legislative session and uh, the state senate and the redistricting, which will also have a big impact on how uh, Jewish voters uh, determines um, some key races and in New York City well, right I, I don't think it's a fair I don't think it's it's a I think it's a very fair point to say that the Jewish vote uh, could determine the winner of the Democratic primary for governor 
uh, the Jewish vote will, will be very, very decisive in, in that regard. And in the general election, uh, the Jewish vote and where the Jews uh, go, depending on who the Democratic nominee could determine the general election as well. And uh, I, I just want to interrupt you for one second because you talked about Jewish Republicans with Lee Zeldin. I do want to draw, go back to 2021. We did see two Jewish Republicans uh, in very major league races. I mean, one more major league, which is Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman becoming the first Jewish County Executive of Nassau County. Uh, Bruce Blakeman, and we also saw another, a different Jewish Republican, Ina Vernikoff, have a, I mean, some consider it an upset. I thought, I actually thought she had a good chance to win. Ina Vernikoff winning in southern Brooklyn, uh, taking over a city council seat. Uh, another Jewish Republican. So, uh, what, is, what does that mean from your perspective? Obviously, Republicans had a great night in November of 2021. Does that set the table for 2022? I do think so. Um, uh 2022 is a midterm election and it's sort of always a referendum on the incumbent party but it also will especially if there's um, a fight over redistricting especially if the new mayor and the new governor uh, um, you know issue more mandates that would implicate religious institutions especially if there's the level of outreach that we saw in the mayoral uh, primary, um, where candidates actually, and we'll get to that, where candidates actually made an effort to reach out to the voting blocks, I anticipate um, a lot of people to come out to vote. Now, again, it depends on the nas national mood. If the mood will shift towards Republicans, if uh, the, uh, people will be angry about uh, redistricting and, and shifting, moving uh, certain neighborhoods, into democratic uh, strongholds, I believe that a lot of people will not only, uh, and, and you know, when you talk about Jewish Republicans, you have to uh, note that in the Orthodox community, people mostly either identify with the Republican Party, no matter what, if it's for governor, if it's for uh, um, a congressional, uh, you know, and um, for president, but also the Orthodox voting blocks who on a city and a statewide level would usually uh, come out uh, in support of Democratic candidates because that's their nature of sort of seeing who is in power and who has a better chance of winning. You can potentially see orthodox voting blocks shifting towards Republican, especially in the gubernatorial race. Now, again, we don't know what's going to be the outcome in the governor race. If Jamani Williams, for instance, pulls an upset and wins, and you have Zephyr Teachout pull an upset and win the AG race, you could definitely see a, uh, uh, an effort on, on behalf of the uh, Orthodox voting blocks to vote for the entire Republican ticket. And that would really benefit uh, the Republican in New York City, because New York City is, is obviously the model. If a Republican can pull 30% in New York City, they can win uh, the governor race. But also it's very important to note uh, the New York City mayoral race because it was also uh, a sort of, an, you know, a shift from January to uh, May and June. What started the year with this Andrew Yang, who nobody knew, suddenly become a defender of the Orthodox Jewish community with his stance on yeshivas, with his statements that he wouldn't interfere in education, that he would sort of 
be a staunch uh, defender of of religious groups uh, sort of shifted towards Eric Adams who is this institutional um, uh, Democrat who gets along with everybody but would also govern as a real true uh, Democrat now he's not progressive as the other candidates who ran he, he he's uh, somewhat described as a Mike Bloomberg Democrat who is a moderate who knows um, uh, how to govern on police reform and on public safety he seemed very strong but it was also very notable that what seemed to sort of determine the mayoral race was these uh, certain orthodox voting blocks in Brooklyn. And in the end, Eric Adams, who made an aggressive effort uh, to court uh, the Jewish vote, won with only 7,000 votes. So everybody could claim victory here. And you see it already. Well, right. right. What can the Jewish community expect differently from Eric Adams than they had from Bill de Blasio? Two things. I mean, what will they both, both uh, are, have been described as having close relationships with the Jewish community, particularly in Brooklyn. But what, what from your perspective, will they do differently? There's one thing to say about uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio is when you look at his record, uh, I think he has a pretty strong record when it comes to Jewish issues. Um, Matita Bepe, he repealed, uh, he restored uh, after-school vouchers that is very important to the Orthodox community. He obviously um, uh, uh, um, intervened in some way to stall the investigations uh, on the yeshiva curriculums. And on Israel, he was a strong supporter of Israel, a progressive, outspoken uh, opponent of uh, BDS. But, and, and as you say, he had very strong relationship with the Jewish community. I think when it came to governing, uh, he sort of either got bad advice or his instinct of appealing to his progressive base and labor groups uh, sort of complicated uh, that. And so, and, and I would also add, it has to do a lot with messaging. Uh, he's a poor communicator. Uh, I mean, even now, he doesn't know how to to handle the press in a manner where just to generate positive courage on good things that you do. He, unlike uh, um, governor, uh, former governor Andrew Cuomo, he wasn't as um, you know divide, divisive and um, as uh, aggressive um, as he was in his approach uh, uh, to you know during the the coronavirus outbreak and later on when we had these red zones. Right. The red zones, particular. But in the right. end, if go in in the streets of Borough Park and Williamsburg, or people blame him just he's, as much. He's, yeah. he's no question. Uh, sort of their their number one enemy, and I can attest to that because I've been accused as a messenger, as somebody who actually worked hand in hand uh, with him to impose those restrictions. So I feel like he, right, particularly this new mandate. The new mandate right, coming and, forward yeah, and with regard to this new the, mandate. He is leaving office literally in three weeks. Now, again, as I mentioned, he's already seen as someone who did a bad job on COVID, who sort of uh, had a failed uh, presidential um, race campaign. And you have three weeks to sort of either maintain your relationships uh, build new relationships because you're actually wanting to run uh, for governor. 
and you mess it up with your own hands three weeks before going out of office. Now, I don't know if the court will uphold uh, this mandate, if uh, Eric Adams, uh, who I anticipate, would probably, I don't know if he would um, cancel it, um, but he might not enforce it in a way, uh, at least in the beginning, in a way that seems that he's sort of um, continuing uh, Mayor de Blasio. He, he will want to show that he is, you know, coming with a new approach, a new era of cooperation with, with you know, an outreach. And, and, and the most important thing about Eric Adams is the messaging. He's a very effective uh, communicator. Uh, he'll do very well in right. communicating his message, in doing personal outreach, and not leaving it up to his advisors. And and, and I would note, uh, and Michael, you know, and the public also knows, uh, Eric Adams has some strong Jewish advisors, um, and even his closest advisors, who are not Jewish, uh, have very good relations uh, with the Jewish community. So I anticipate it's sort of a Right, but Bill, Bill de Blasio had he that too. I mean, it. did he not? He I mean, either he didn't, he didn't listen, listen to them, to them okay. or he got bad advice, but he was also very inclined to sort of play to his progressive base, something that I don't see right. Eric Adams do in the same manner. Again, you know, Eric Adams has, has I, also I gotta... uh, ambitions to become president one day, so he might. Right. Let me let me ask you uh, with regard to de Blasio's progressive support for Israel, which I find to be very interesting considering his progressive orthodoxy, obviously very gratified by it. And I think it's that's wonderful. Uh, but I think that uh, you alluded to this. We started the year with this progressive wave that uh, catapulted in 20 uh, in 2020 many different progressive voices particularly here in New York City and you know New York State to office one of them being Jamal Bowman the congressman from the Bronx and Southern Westchester who has run into some hot water with progressive groups uh, over the fact that he went with J Street to Israel which is uh, I think our average listener would be so puzzled by this because they, of course, think that J Street is way out there to the left. But Bowman, this is not good enough for some progressive groups like the Democratic Socialists of America, just so that we all can understand the depth of their hatred and anti-Semitism, that they want to throw him out of the organization for just having visited Israel. Uh, and this kind of, I want to harken back to the Last year, we talked about that the DSA, this same organization, was going to have city council candidates pledge at, to not visit Israel, or the, essentially to boycott Israel themselves, in order to get endorsements. So, I don't know, Jacob, maybe you could enlighten the, the audience here as to what's going on with Jamal Bowman and what does this mean for pro-Israel Democrats or pro-Israel progressives and how they deal with, with their party's left. First of all... Uh, Jamal Bowman is a very good example of somebody who is progressive, who is actually a staunch progressive and um, has some um, strange uh, alliances that sort of don't uh, pair well with um, what he really believes in or what he has to do in order to represent his constituents, which is also a large uh, Jewish constituents in his uh, district. But I think that, yes, going to Israel on a J Street trip should be sort of uh, praised by progressive Democrats. Why? Because he actually visited Hebron. If you look at the coverage of that trip, 
it didn't receive a lot of coverage uh, from mainstream media or from the congressmen themselves who went. But Jamal Bowman actually tweeted one tweet out of Israel, and that was a uh, meeting with a group of Palestinians in Hebron and uh, stating that the occupation must end. And so if you go down to the region and you meet with Israelis and Palestinians and you conclude after the meeting that the occupation must end, that means you already spoke to the Israeli prime minister. He failed to explain you that he's, his policy is the right policy. And then you met with a group of Palestinians and you concluded that the occupation must end. That means being on the ground is actually beneficial to, to your thinking and you should encourage that. And, and, and by the way, if you mentioned the SA, I don't know how successful they were in number one recruiting candidates who would actually win the races. And most of the uh, progressive DSA members who won their races are not necessarily backed by the DSA. So I don't think that they need to sort of cater to the DSA uh, movement. But yes, of course, it will be a challenge for uh, the incoming uh, council. It will be a challenge for those uh, uh, Jewish representatives to be more outspoken. But I would also note regarding Jamal Bowman is number one, his approach itself, which you can either criticize or defend. But he also has two neighboring uh, Congress people who are as progressive as he is, but have different affiliations. Mondaire Jones in Nita Lois district and a Richie Torres in the Bronx with probably 10 Jews live in his district. And so you see that... It used to be right. a very Jewish neighborhood but once upon a what, time. What you see uh, is that they are very progressive. They're very pro the Build Back uh, Bill, uh, Build Back Better Bill, which uh, some people don't like, right? But they are pro-Israel, and they're very outspoken when it comes uh, to, um, to uh, stand up against anti-Semitism. And so for progressives who actually want to be influential and uh, change policy, I think being in power, number one, is uh, the first attempt at doing that. But also, once you're in power, how do you actually represent your district, but also how do you change policy and not just uh, stand on the sidelines and, and yell and scream and get positive coverage from fringe uh, outlets, but also um, how do you make uh, America as a society better? And uh, that's why there are elections. And that's why we focus on Jewish voters is because uh, when we speak about these policies, uh, we should always uh, remember that if you don't go out to vote, you don't matter. And if you do vote, then you can hold your representatives accountable. Okay, Jacob, as we uh, wind down, uh 2021 look to 2022 any bold predictions for the audience here and it need not involve a jew specifically it could just be political or it could be something jewish the boldest prediction would be that i would still have work to do uh irregardless of what the outcome is in the primary Politics right. never stops, uh, as as we well as we well know. So uh, you go from one election to the other. That's why we still have something to talk about. Every and week. I would say, you know, we we always say in Rosh Hashanah, we say let the year start and its blessings, and we always curse the year past. I don't think we have to look at the past year 
as something that is bad. Um, you know, we had challenging moments as we had in 2020. Uh, the just the NYPD just released its um, stats that showed that uh, 36, 37 percent of the hate crimes uh, in New York City were anti-Semitic incidents, which is very uh, uh, concerning. But also, we have to look at what we can accomplish, but also what we uh, went through and are still here. Um, you know. Uh, defiant, uh, um, you know, we our religious institutions are still open. Um, we can still walk on the street, uh, being proud Jews, and our representatives are actually uh, either reaching out or uh, communicating in a way that um, does benefit um, our um, at least advance our well-being. And so, in 2022, what I would look at is one the gubernatorial race uh who actually um wins that race will matter because if uh, governor hokel um, ends up winning that race that will just show that you know you don't have to be you don't have to have that loudspeaker uh you don't need that bully pulpit uh to actually uh impress voters um and your constituents but actually do the groundwork and if Tish James actually ends up winning, that will be a very uh, a strong uh, message from New Yorkers uh, to their government officials to say, if you mess up, uh, we can actually um, uh, change uh, uh, and take you out of power and talk about an upset. Uh, I would say the um, number one, depending obviously on redistricting, uh, we can see a competitive race in Staten Island with a rematch between Max Rose and Nicole Maliotakis. It will also depend on the national mood, obviously. But I also believe that uh, the governor race will be competitive and that a lot of things that we don't think about in this very discussion that we are taught that we are uh, when we are looking at 2022, uh, there'll be a lot of developments that we didn't anticipate or even expect uh so just uh you know okay we'll keep it we'll keep it interesting jacob cornblue senior political reporter for the jewish daily forward thank you for joining us uh once again and we look forward to uh i i should say yes or no will the republicans take the house again i i can't predict how lots it's a yes, yes or no, yes or no. Republicans take the House. I would be bold and say they would take the House and possibly the Senate as well. Okay, very good. That's the prediction I was looking for. Thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. And uh, obviously we'll have to have you back in 2022 to uh, correct any of these uh, potentially misimpressions. For you, Michael. Excellent. So as we close out this week of uh, political talk, I have three Different points I want to make. Number one, Devin Nunez, the chair, one-time chair of the House Intelligence Committee, now the ranking member, and in line to be, if the Republicans take the House, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, which is possibly the most important committee in Congress, uh, responsible for all tax writing, tax code, etc., Ways and Means uh, has chosen to give up his seat to not run for re-election and to resign, actually, to become CEO of Trump Media. Uh, 
So one has to wonder. Uh, you see a lot of Democrats, chairman, headed for the exits because they know that they will likely not be in the minority coming forward. Devin Nunez in line to be a chairman, if not the, one of those powerful people in the House, would rather run a media company. Uh, background as a farmer. So that's kind of, uh, well, that's interesting to say the least. Uh, and polling that got piqued my interest, an Axios Generation Lab poll. I know we kind of have this idea that, well, the Republicans are the reactionary ones and the right-wingers are the ones who are militant and they don't want to be friends with liberals and lefties. Well, it seems to be the opposite. The partisan divide, 71% of Democrats would not go on a date with somebody with opposing views. That means Republicans versus 31% of Republicans would not date a Democrat. 30% of Democrats and 7% of Republicans wouldn't work for somebody who voted differently from them. 5% of Republicans said they wouldn't be friends with somebody from the opposing party compared to 37% of Democrats said they would not be friends with someone who is a Republican. My fellow Americans, we are not talking to each other. We are not willing to listen to each other. We are not willing to ascribe any validity to one another's views that's tragic that's upsetting it's wrong challenge yourself get out there get out there listen to what other people have to say you don't have to agree with them but to some extent you have should be listening to them and should be willing to respect them and uh as we close the you have to mark the passing of bob dole former senate majority minority leader as well as a great American, the greatest of the greatest generation, amongst them presidential candidate in the Republican ticket in 1996, lost to Bill Clinton, but truly, truly a great American, as someone who actually gave an incredible impassioned speech on the mall in the great rally for Soviet Jewry that took place in Washington, D.C. so many years ago. Hundreds of thousands of Americans showed up, including much of the American Jewish community showed up. Bob Dole gave a great speech urging President Gorbachev, Premier Gorbachev at the time, to let our people go. It's the kind of thing we don't remember too much about the idea that Jews were stuck behind the Iron Curtain and we had to go ahead and demand their basic rights. Bob Dole remembered, we would be remembered fondly. Uh, Certainly one of the great Americans, great American public servants of the 20th century. And that's it for this week here on Spin Class here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.